Let's take a movie everybody knows, Star Wars. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Princess Leia and Chewbacca. You know what? I have a new hope for this industry. I'm an obsessive person and I've had so many obsessions throughout my life. Star Wars being one of them. You know, Star Wars is kind of a classic example that I use. You've ever seen Star Wars? I'm gonna make a fairy tale for kids because there are no heroes in movies today. I mean, at least that's what he thought in the early 70s when he first began his journey of writing the original Star Wars film. If they tried to describe Star Wars before people saw it, I don't think it, people would have understood what it was gonna be because it sounded like crap. You know, this guy travels around with this big hairy creature and, you know, and then there's this guy in a mask and he's the villain and he's, you know, it was, but then you see it. And what made Star Wars great was that it was a visualization of everything we'd been reading in science fiction for decades, but had never been visualized that well. And so that's what set it apart. It wasn't that it was enormously original, it was that it was transferring to film what had been, we'd been reading about forever, but had never seen on film. And so that was what made it so exciting. You know, flying through the asteroid belt and all those wonderful things, the laser battles and you name it. It was, it was great fun. It's one of the most entertaining films ever made. Star Wars was like an uh, instant hit, you know, and uh, that summer. But then who knew it would grow into such a franchise and, around. you know, it just went from strength to strength until it's, I guess, the world's biggest franchise right now. Huh? It's fascinating to look at that case study because, yeah, you have two films that had similar budgets, both had similar type of filmmakers. They were targeting a very similar audience. They were released at the same time. Like, everything is the same. One becomes a really good movie that people love and actually did pretty well, Close Encounters and the Third Kind. Another uh, becomes a $50 billion brand. And so what, there's a variable in there somewhere that created that separation in the marketplace. And uh, we, we, can, we can look at that and probably guess pretty closely why that happened. Uh, there's a book that I read recently called How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, where they ask Steven Spielberg this exact same question. And uh, b because him and, him and Lucas would actually give each other producer points on, the, on all of their movies. And so, so uh, Lucas had producer points on Close Encounters, Spielberg had, had producer points on Star Wars. Obviously, uh, Spielberg got a better part of that deal. Uh, but, and they said, well, why, you know, why did it work out so well uh, for Lucas and, and you know, pretty well for you, but it's not even in the same ballpark? He said, there's two reasons. He said, from the beginning, Lucas approached this project not as just a single film. He always had a broader vision. He understood that there was a story before this, there's gonna be a story after this. Maybe he didn't have all the things planned out exactly and have it all worked out, but his vision was very big from the beginning. And secondly, he said he had a world that people wanted to explore. He had a story world. He said, I never even gave any uh, a thought of my story world. I, uh, the, the setting of Close Encounters is our world that's just being invaded by aliens. But what he did, he created a world that people wanted to continue to explore. And, and, and if you can create a world and an IP, an intellectual property, that people want to continue to explore, then all of a sudden that then makes the room for the other things that you want to do. And so, you know, what's really interesting about Lucas in the same book is that he didn't grow up wanting to be a filmmaker. He, want, he grew up wanting to be an architect. And he, he worked at his dad's toy store every summer as a kid.
And so he approached filmmaking not from a filmmaking standpoint. He approached it from a architectural and toy standpoint. And, and, and he still went into make a good movie, of course, but he then approached it, the, the industry and the creative and the writing of it in a completely different way that then fueled all these opportunities. When you look at the very first Star Wars movie, George Lucas, I know I bring it up a lot, but Star Wars was influenced by many things, you know, serials from the 1930s, um, from things like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. I mean, George Lucas famously just wanted to make Flash Gordon, but had trouble with getting the rights. It was influenced by Marvel Comics. It was influenced by a tragic event where he almost died um, in a car accident and was in the hospital for a long period of time. And that near-death experience changed George Lucas. Uh, much, much of his influence was from also his father in his life, who was a successful business person who he looked up to. Um, a lot of his experience was growing up in, in Modesto. People, uh, you know, the obsession over car culture and hot rods. And you see that in the character of Han Solo, you know? kind of a guy who's into hot rods. The Millennium Falcon is a hot rod. But so much of the influences that George had, both from life and so much uh, classic literature and storytelling, were kind of thrown in a blender. George called Star Wars the most expensive, low-budget movie ever made. <laughs> and who's what, George? Because <laughs> oh, he's retired now. But George was um, very, uh, very good to work with. Um, he, he really knew what he wanted and, and where he was going with it, and he knew what you, he wanted you to do. So um, I really enjoyed the fact that he was so prepared. He also had, um, uh, he had a technique which uh, we now call a ripomatic. And that technique was to, he got footage from uh, old World War II movies like the Dam Busters and Tora, Tora, Tora. And he basically cut his end action sequence out of footage from these World War II movies. And then that became uh, a template for the effects because you, you know, you'd, you'd go to the cut and you'd say, okay, I need a, a ship moving from left to right and another one coming in this way. And um, it's gonna be 17 frames long. So it was a way of, um, you know, they have whole departments in movies now called previs uh, for, for doing this kind of work now. But uh, back then, um, this was a technique I'd never seen before and uh, it worked really, really well. The three second rule is if you're creating a world or um, an immersive experience, if your audience member doesn't understand the world they're in in three seconds or less, then you have not successfully um, suspended their disbelief. And this idea came, uh, you know, the first time I heard it was uh, a story about George Lucas when he was creating his. Um, the Star Wars universe is that when an audience member looks at a Star Wars world and if it doesn't feel, and he was creating it, you know, if it doesn't feel like something that belonged in the world that he was creating, then it does not belong. Um, so 
it was a really interesting way to look at the world that you're creating to make sure that it's consistent throughout um, your whole experience. And if you're creating something that is truly immersive, then it should feel immersive from every to every single detail from beginning to end. If you look at from the original Star Wars movie, the uh, the cantina scene where Luke and Obi-Wan, they go into the cantina and there's all those crazy aliens around and they, this is where they find Han Solo for the first time. There was, there was a very specific choice of, of, I want these crazy aliens all around. They, they could have had, to, to cut back on budget, they could have had everybody look human like Luke if they wanted to. But instead, he really made sure that every single character in that bar and in that cantina look, had a very distinctive look, that they, they, they seemed mysterious, that they, it was obvious that all of them had some sort of backstory involved. And just that creative, one, the writing decision, two, the directorial decision, if you watch the scene, the way they made sure they got shots of all of them, there were interesting ones in the foreground, in the background, they took time in the, in the edit of the film to, to cut, 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 and show a handful of them. Then those creative opportunities, both in the writing, the directing, and the editing, then fueled short stories and video games and cartoons that dealt with all of them. They created web content for all of them. They created game content for all of them. And they created toys for all of them. So now, uh, all of a sudden, where most filmmakers and directors would say, my scene is about my protagonist and my antagonist and the, the character, our central characters, everything else is background. Lucas never considered anybody background. He looked at all these other characters as potential stories, potential stories, potential stories that just so happened to be in the background of this scene. But I'm gonna develop all of them as if they could be the heroes of their own story and then put them in the background. Grand Moff Tarkin walks in the room, Darth Vader walks in the room, they, they, and they, they're having a council meeting, right, on the Death Star, and he talks about the Emperor has wiped away the Imperial Senate. There'll not be a concern for us. I'm not quoting it correct directly, but that's the basic line. Well, one, I'm an audience member. One, who are all these evil men in this room, right? This is already scary. Secondly, wait, there's an Emperor of the Galaxy and there's an Imperial Senate who is this emperor of the galaxy? There was an imperial senate, why were they wiped away? My imagination as a kid was utilized because characters in the movie talked about off-screen events happening. And I think that that is a device that is underused. So going back to Star Wars, for, did you see Star Wars? So going back to Star, I'm just gonna keep doing that joke. An unlikable character, um, might be better way to describe Han Solo in the first Star Wars movie, where he was kind of, uh, he was selfish, he was out for himself, he only cared about money, didn't care about the cause that the that uh, Princess Leia was on, and he was, you know, parts of him were unlikable. He was still, it's look, it's Harrison Ford, he's a very attractive man, that chiseled jaw. Sure. I'm very envious of that right. chiseled jaw. Be right? mean like, to me, yeah. Exactly, he beats me, so, but he's, you know, um, He's unlikable and has a redemption, right? So that redemption arc is important, not just, you know, and, and we've seen it happen more with villains. Darth Vader. Well, I would say the greatest villain in movie history is Darth Vader. 
that that would be a, a great villain that comes to mind. The emperor is the ultimate antagonist. He believes he's not just being evil for the sake of being evil. He's he thinks he's bringing peace and order to the uh, to the to the galaxy. Like without his agenda, you know, it's, he's like he's the ultimate believer, and you got to break a few eggs if you want to make an omelet. You know, if he doesn't if he doesn't do what he's going to do, the the entire universe will fall into into you know some sort of state of you know, of total chaos, you know, where he says, okay, look, uh, you know, maybe I have got to, I've got to destroy a couple of planets to achieve my, my goal. But if I don't, even more planets will get destroyed because there'll be such chaos. You know, you know, it, it needs like a firm hand, you know, on the, uh, you know, on, you know, ruling the universe. So, so he has to believe that, yeah, yeah, people are not going to like my methods, but now, but Give it some time and people will. And Darth Vader to me is the culmination of probably some of the best aspects of, of villains from all types, uh, you know, whether it be from you know, movie serials or comic books. Uh, it's fairly easy to argue that Dar Darth Vader was very influenced by Doctor Doom from the Fantastic Four comic books created by Stan Lee. Uh, the look of Darth Vader kind of based on that, also based on a little bit of a samurai in there um, in terms of the helmet and, and other aspects of Darth Vader's character and the fact that it took, you know, uh, you know, David Prowse as an actor uh, and then James Earl Jones as a voice actor to kind of create this and also the physical look, you know, the costume designers and, and whatnot and, and Ralph Bakshi to kind of design the character or versions of the character to what it became on screen. So, so much went into the creation of Darth Vader as a villain and that Darth Vader has a tragic backstory that only a piece of it becomes revealed in the second movie in which Darth Vader appeared, The Empire Strikes Back. You know, villains have layers. The scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Darth Vader's talking to the bounty hunters could have been between Darth Vader and Boba Fett. There didn't have to be any other characters there. Just Darth Vader saying, Boba Fett, go catch Han Solo. But Lucas made the creative decision in the story to have Boba Fett and eight other bounty hunters there in that scene. Now, what that did, that creative decision then spurred a whole other product that was part of the business plan, which was this anthology of short stories that existed in the marketplace to engage the fan base and generate revenue. That all was, was premised and created and birthed out of the creative decision of the writer and director to have multiple characters in the scene. When George Lucas was mapping out the story for The Empire Strikes Back, he realized that the audience would never believe that you would kill Luke Skywalker. So you have this lightsaber duel at the end of The Empire Strikes Back and it's Luke Skywalker fighting Darth Vader. Where's the tension? Because we already know that he's making a trilogy. You're not gonna kill off Luke Skywalker. So there's really no drama or tension in that scene. So what Lucas did, he's like, okay, since they, the audience is not gonna believe that I would kill Luke Skywalker. What if the real drama, the real threat, is that Luke might turn to the dark side? And because he, he, he 
doesn't listen to Yoda's advice. He doesn't complete his training. He goes off as, as, as not a fully trained Jedi and faces his greatest nemesis, who he then learns at the end of the, after losing that fight, that it's his father. Could he turn to the dark side? And, and George Lucas believed that, the audience might believe that he would turn to the dark side. I promised I would tell them the story of Luke becoming a Jedi like his father. I promised that I would tell the story of Luke saving the princess. I promised I would tell the story about trying to stop the Death Star. And if you look at the story, every beat is something about one of those three components. And you know, if it's like cut to, you know, Luke goes to a pet shop and decides that he wants to buy a dog, you go, it might be the sweetest, cutest, most fun scene, you know, in the history of fun scenes, but you know, it's not moving the story forward. Even Star Wars is is thematically rich. Uh, but we don't think about it because we, we're thinking about the, you know, the space opera part of it and the technology and the good versus evil. But there is a character arc in there and it's an actually a thematic argument through the story about what it's about. You know, it's usually an argument between two things. Um, and in Star Wars, it's, it's technology versus the, the energy, the force. And if you look at the scenes and you really pay attention to what they're talking about, even Darth Vader makes that argument in the scenes with, uh, with his superiors, with the, the whatever, whoever uh, Peter Cushing plays. It's not the, em the emperor, no, it's not the emperor, but whoever, his boss. And all these scenes you have where he talks about the dark side of the force, and then the other side is talking about the power of the, the Death Star, of technology, and that's the argument. And then Luke and Obi-Wan have the argument about the Force and owning the Force. And if you look at the last moment, that moment where Luke has to decide versus the Force and technology, right, the, the targeting system, and at the last second he makes that choice, that's his epiphany, that's the, the, the decision he made. He could have kept, you know, he could have chosen the other thing, he could have chosen technology with the Force, that would have been a different story. Right? We're saying, well, technology is more important than the force. In this case, Lucas wanted to show that the force is more important than technology, and that's what Luke's decision, that's what he showed, and that's, that was what the audience, audiences walked away from. Luke is asking the question, what's more powerful, faith or technology? And he grapples with that throughout the entire story. Right? Everything is about, you know, is about that. Um, the, all the bad guys have no such questions. They make the argument. Technology is strong. Like Darth Vader is a result of technology. He had faith and it didn't save him back when he had his fight with Obi-Wan. Um, so faith let him down. He's now surviving based on technology. The Death Star is a giant ball of flashy, blinky technology, right? It, it's like, you know, the faith is gone from the universe, right? You, my friend, are all that's left of, you know, your faith or whatever, you know, the, whatever is said to him. Um, so the bad guys have no such questions. They are convinced. They, they make the argument that, that technology is stronger than faith. Luke is uncertain. And what does he learn finally at the end is that faith and technology can work together, right? And that's where you get the ultimate strength. Right? Because he uses, he uses when he destroys the Death Star, he shuts off the targeting computer, which is him rejecting technology, use the force, Luke, right? He's embracing faith, but it's like, it's not like he does one of, you know, the Obi-Wan two-finger air move and the Death Star explodes. He still uses technology 
to destroy the, the Death Star. He right? uses the torpedoes. So he's using technology in, in concert with faith, and that's the strongest of all. So it's a really an interesting lesson, right? That you don't have to, you don't have to reject, you don't have to be Amish, right? Where you're t rejecting technology, right? And you don't have to be, you know, sort of a scientific atheist where you're completely rejecting faith. You, you can be somebody who's embracing everything that the world has to offer in terms of both spirituality and technology. And that's where you get sort of a complete person. So, so for me, that's how you tell a story. Uh, Luke gets to the planet, the last rebel planet. Uh, uh, Darth has followed him there with a homing beacon. He's got a Death Star. He's gonna blow up the whole damn thing. There's nothing Luke can do about it. There's just a little few starfighters and he's got a Death Star. That's it, the movie's over. And then of course, what happens? R2D2 says, hey, I stole the plans of the Death Star. There's a little hole you can fill a missile in if you really get close. And Luke, you can be the only one who can get that missile in that hole if you use the force, not your computer. And so the obstacle point is all is lost. And the climax is Luke learns the theme of the story. Luke, will you use the force to rescue the princess and save the Republic? He puts his computer away. All the other starfighters used it. They couldn't get the missile in. He puts his computer away. He's learned. He hears Obi-Wan say, Luke, use the force, not the computer. And he puts the missile in the hole. Climax. So the obstacle point is all is lost. And the climax is, Luke, you did it. What's the, the central question of Star Wars? The professional question is, will, um, will Luke destroy the Death Star? Right? The um, personal question is, will he save Princess Leia? And the private question is, will he be a Jedi like his father? Right? So if you look at Star Wars, you know, the professional, personal, and private, you go that all three of those get answered right at the climax of the movie, right? He destroys the Death Star. So yeah, sure, he went in and he saved Princess Leia from the jail cell, but they let him get away because they would lead him to the rebel base, right? And um, the, the way of saving Princess Leia for real, because she's on the planet that the Death Star is about to destroy, right? So the way to save Princess Leia ultimately is to destroy the Death Star. And the way to destroy the Death Star is he's got all the technology and stuff that he's using, but he shuts it off and he uses the force. So in one fell swoop, right, in one moment in the climax, he uses the force, saves the princess by destroying the Death Star. So the central question is answered in the affirmative, yes, yes, and yes. Yeah, will he, yeah, will he save Princess Leia, yes. Will he destroy the Death Star? Yes. Will he become a Jedi like his father? Yes. So we started shooting these explosions and we would shoot, I would look directly up at his explosions so they would explode over the lens and therefore give it the zero G impression that it was happening in outer space. Because obviously if you, if you shoot an, ex, uh, an explosion normally, you get a big mushroom cloud and it doesn't, doesn't look like it's in outer space. So. Uh, we started off letting these little bombs off and it was um, um, quite successful and shooting them with high-speed cameras. And then we got bigger and bigger and we moved on to much bigger stages until eventually we, we had like a 40-foot blue screen and we would drop the wire down in the middle of that blue screen and we would light the blue screen with like, I think there were uh, eight arc lamps, you know, which were the most powerful lamps that you could get in those days. 
and uh, shooting them with a VistaVision camera. And we would, we would shoot up through a piece of glass, which was with two sawhorses and a piece of plywood and a hole cut out <clears throat> to shoot through. And then a piece of glass was over that to protect the lens. And then we, we let off these bigger and bigger bombs until finally we had the, uh, the explosions that we needed for uh, blowing up the, the, uh, the Death Star and also for blowing up Alderaan. All the money's up on the screen. The only people they really had to pay real money to were Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing because we were pretty much all unknowns. Half of the fun of some of these characters from the, Star, the world of Star Wars is the fact that we didn't know anything about them, that we could use our imagination. Professionally, and also in terms of quality, it's like, if I was gonna do that, I'd need to hire Mark Hamill. <laughs> like, you know, there'd be, no, there'd be no gray area. It's okay, I mean, people come up and say, I'm really sorry, I've never seen Star Wars. Well, that's fine, <laughs> I'm not upset, that's okay, it's not for everybody, you know. Like I say, the young and the mentally young. Those are the ones that really are our biggest fans. Uh, there's something to be said about uh, it appeals to the child in all of us because you see grown men, policemen and firemen who are authority figures let down their guard and become nine years old again. Like, will you pose with this lightsaber? Really? You were just about to arrest me. <laughs> now you're my friend. Uh, it's been amazing because I, 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 I never expected it to have this sort of longevity or the impact on these people. And you meet people all the time that say, I became what I became because of that movie. So it's quite, uh, it's awesome when you think about the, 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 the impact that it's had after all these years. I certainly never thought I'd be still talking about it. Something else that occurs to me also um, related to Star Wars. Yes, a recurring topic in conversations that I will have with you and that I have with my friends often. Uh, you know, maybe it's a form of therapy. I look at the Star Wars films and, and, and just with, with immense respect for how they've been able to keep that IP alive over 60 years or 50 years, however long it's been, how much they've been able to scale the brand, how long they've been able to sustain the fan community and create the culture that they have uh, to continue to, to, to push artistic boundaries of what they're doing with the Mandalorian and the volumetric capture stage that, that they, they, they built and, and uh, just, you know, the, the storytelling of the Mandalorian, what they're doing, what they're doing now with all the crossover stuff that the, that on, on Disney Plus is absolutely incredible. You have somebody like a, a character like Ahsoka Tano. I'm going to get Star Wars nerdy for a second. You have, you have a character like Ahsoka Tano who is a character from the Clone Wars animated series that they then pull into a different animated series, Star Wars Rebels, that they then pull into a live action series of the Mandalorian uh, and cast a live action actress and now gonna spin her off to her own live action series on Disney Plus. What they're doing from a in a transmedia sense is just really super interesting. And, and how they revived the Star Wars, I mean, say revive, it's not like it was dead, but like the way they brought Star Wars back in front of culture with Baby Yoda, and and now we know as Grogu, but but ever like everybody was talking about Baby Yoda, just a cultural sensation of Baby Yoda. So it's a really smart, interesting choices that they make, and especially now with Star, they they, have, they just uh, they have something now called Star Wars Visions, where they it's it's uh, it's uh, animated short films that are all done, created in the manga style. 
so you like uh, Japanese animation. It's all done in with with manga creators uh, telling manga stories uh, in the Star Wars universe that are very much catered to uh, to a completely new market, a younger market, a, a more Eastern market where Star Wars hasn't been able to really get a foothold as a brand very much. And 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 it, and it works and it's good and it's and it, and it's it's powerful storytelling. And um, so I, I appreciate them as a fan. I appreciate them as a filmmaker, and I appreciate them as somebody who understands how to build and sustain IP. Like the way they do it is just a masterclass on on how to keep an engine like that running, and not just running, but thriving in the midst of multiple, multiple decades. It's really is a tremendous thing, and it all goes back to how George Lucas created and built the whole thing. It's really like he he approached it in a, a unique way and they've continued to to keep that going. Did you never outgrew you outgrow these things, right? You said no. uh, there was a point where I like Star Wars because basically oh, our well, fans are the young and the mentally young. No, my point I've never outgrown Star Wars. My point was that uh, there was a specific time where I was probably the most obsessed about it. Now <laughs> it's turned into a minor obsession. <laughs> okay, just checking.